0: Hey everybody, welcome to the What Is Money show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. We are 100% sponsor-based, which means that all the revenues we derive come from sponsorships, but I try to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with specifically trying to choose those who have values well aligned to the values expressed on this show, like freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do is a few ad reads right here at the top of the show, and then a few ad-, ad reads in the middle. And I hope you won't skip them. I hope you'll take the time, listen and see what they have to offer. Cause again, these are hand selected sponsors. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Ledin. Ledin lets you do more with your digital assets. For instance, Ledin offers a B2X loan product that lets you leverage your existing Bitcoin to buy even more Bitcoin. Or you can also get traditional Bitcoin collateralized US dollar loans through Leden as well. Ledin also offers both Bitcoin and USDC denominated savings accounts, letting you generate yield on your digital assets. Recently, Leden has launched a Bitcoin mortgage product as well that lets you use Bitcoin to buy a home or finance one that you already own. So go to ledin.io, that's L-E-D-N.io today to sign up. So we're in the principle of meaningful relationships, and I'll open with a quote from Ray. <clears throat> the rewards of working together to make the pie bigger are greater than the rewards of self-interest not only in terms of how much pie one gets but also in the psychic rewards wired into our brains that make us happier and healthier unquote so in talking about the idea or the principle of meaningful relationships i think we could start with what is its opposite to try to get a, uh, to try to clarify what it is and i would argue that the opposite of meaningful relationships is is war and violence, Um, you know, that's where you are basically trying to destroy, kill and destroy your fellow man rather than relate to them in any meaningful way. And when I look across the history of central banking, um, I think one of the most salient features about it is that it is very tightly bound up with the history of modern warfare. And there's a lot of things to be said about this. Uh, We could start with some data from the United Nations, which showed that between the 16th and 19th centuries, conflict-related deaths as a share of world population averaged less than 1%. Yet in the 20th century, the century of central banking, uh, this figure more than quadrupled to over 4%. Uh, This is not a coincidence. you know, inflating fiat currencies is giving governments uh, much lower cost of capital, effectively, for waging war. Uh, you know, in all the, the ways we've described earlier, it's this invisible or surreptitious way to finance military operations without a vote, without any legal proceeding. Um, and it, it is met with much less resistance than more traditional means of war financing, like direct taxation. Or the selling of wartime bonds, right? Raising raising debt. Um, so, fiat currency—the implementation of fiat currency—enables um, governments to expand money supplies or inflate money supplies much more rapidly than they otherwise could. And those proceeds are often used to fund war chest right to to expand the balance sheets of warring nations and to that end uh ron paul has a very fantastic quote that i'll read in full he said that it is no coincidence that the century of total war coincided with the century of central banking if every american taxpayer had to submit an extra five or ten thousand dollars to the irs this april to pay for the war i'm quite certain it would end very quickly the problem is that government finances war by borrowing and printing money rather than presenting a bill directly in the form of higher taxes when the costs are obscured the question of whether any war is worth it becomes distorted unquote so you know again three ways uh, government can raise money wage war. You can tax it directly, you can borrow it, or you can print money or inflate the currency. The latter option is clearly the most preferable for governments because its negative consequences are spread out over a long period of time, which is the actual price inflation that comes subsequent to the expansion of the money supply. Um, And it's also just generally less well understood by people. Um, you know, if you hold assets and the nominal dollar value of your price is going up by the printing of money, then you might think inflation is a good thing, especially if there is this, you know, uh, institutionalized pseudoscience telling you that it's a good thing. You need two percent inflation for a healthy economy. Um, and, it, you know, the rising, you know, also not just your house, but equities, whatever your portfolio portfolio is. Wherever it is expanding in nominal terms, you're getting this uh, papering over of the perception of economic harm. Right, the economic harm is still being inflicted, but it's harder to see, and it's it's done over long periods of time. And due to all of that confusion, that illusory nature of it, that optical illusion uh, nature of money printing, it affords bureaucrats, central bankers, uh, politicians, much more plausible deniability, right? And we've seen this over the past two years. Um, The term Putin's inflation is being thrown around here in the United States as if Vladimir Putin somehow had something to do with the the increasing uh, price of beef and gas and all these other things. Not to say that there aren't factors that play into that, but it's not even mentioned that the printing of $6 trillion dollars You know, 30 months ago might have some influence on the increase in nominal prices as well. So, and this is not, again, nothing new here, right? We're just going through it again. We've seen it many times before. Um, For example, you know, in the 1960s, there was a wartime economy that seemed really strong. Right. And there are a lot of, again, a lot of fiat economists uh, advocating even for warfare as a as a means of accelerating economic activity. Um, But in the going into the 70s, citizens suffered this giant echo um, of or they became mired in stagflation, which is low growth, high unemployment uh, and high inflation. And. That was all, you know, because we expanded money supplies in the 60s rapidly. um, Or I'm sorry. There was a post-wartime boom. So it saw the expansion of currency supplies. Uh, This is the post-Bretton Woods era. So where we can export dollars and import goods and services. This was the exorbitant privilege. Um, But with that expansion came this necessary uh, contraction. And so it was Besides just the death and destruction that was wrought during the war itself, there's also this economic devastation and the lag uh, of the boom itself. So between 1965 and 1984, the Dow index suffered a drawdown of 80 percent from its peak value on an inflation adjusted basis in the wake of this soft money fueled military spending spending spree that we saw um in World War 1 and World War 2. And I say this sort of tongue in cheek, but you know, after the great successes of the war on poverty and the war on drugs later on in the 20th century and into the 21st century, um early in the 21st, the US would launch its war on terror. Um And over the course of the following 17 years, the cumulative cost of the war on terror, which I would say is more accurately described as an imperialistic military campaign, uh, the cost of that reached over $2.1 trillion in direct government expenses. And we saw the Fed expand the U.S. money supply by purchasing U.S. government debt, almost exactly equal to the amount of the cost of the war on terror. So again, people weren't paying, weren't footing the bill for these military activities directly, right? They weren't receiving a tax bill from the IRS, as Ron Paul said, that said, hey, you owe us $80,000 this year because we're blowing up people on the other side of the planet. Uh, They didn't borrow the money. They didn't go to the public capital markets and, or private capital markets and try to raise capital to go and wage this war, they just printed the money, right? There was no political process, no vote. It just control P and there it is. And again, it's ironic. I think the, the actual expansion of, uh, during that 17, 17 year period was $2.4 trillion expanding the, the monetary base you know, the cost of the war on terror was $2.1 trillion. So, um, coincidence perhaps, but seems pretty telling in my opinion. And, you know, okay, I think I'll just leave it at that on the relations between central banking and war. Um, for now, there's a lot of books you could read about this. Uh, the Creature from Jekyll Island is always a great place to start with the inception of the Fed. Um, there's another one called the everything bubble, and it describes how distortive central banks are to markets and then, um, the impact of war on markets and whatnot That's central bank funded. But suffice it to say that it's my opinion that the only way we can stop these ceaseless and pointless wars, or at least to, um, shrink their scope their severity their duration is to separate money and state the state if it's going to wage war it needs to wage war within the confines of its own balance sheet right how much money do you have to go and do this Mr state um, when you have a fiat currency, spigot installed inside of the state, it can now make the balance sheets of all of its citizens. It can it can absorb their balance sheets effectively by externalizing inflation, right? You just print money for the military buildup and you dump those costs. You tax those, uh, you tax citizens really with uh, this mechanism. And so all we're talking about here is just remove that option remove that invisible insidious war financing option that has no due process or any political procedure around it whatsoever right remove that force states to tax it or borrow it at least my goodness um and let people keep what they earn right again back to the principle of justice itself so And as far as I can tell, the only shot we have at separating money from state is Bitcoin, right? This often what many people describe this movement as. It is in the same way we had the separation of church and state. Historically, we now have the separation of money and state, potentially. And, um, you know, it's just putting an end to this fiat currency-funded overgrowth of central government through confiscation via inflation. That's really what we're trying to, to do here with the separation of money and state. Um, again, central banks are just centralizing and confiscating purchasing power and then using that stolen purchasing power to wage war and you're you're confiscating capital to actually go out and destroy capital, both in terms of human life and all of the infrastructure and capital goods that it destroys, and so it's very, very self-destructive from from a perspective of humanity, obviously, and in terms of our principle here of meaningful relationships. Again, it's the opposite of what of how humans of how you would want humans to relate to each other. Destroying each other doesn't seem very productive to uh, the collective human enterprise of whatever we choose that to be, uh, preferably living peaceably and being prosperous would be a good start. So if we want a world that has more meaningful relationships, Ray, uh, we must mitigate humanity's ability to self-destruct, right? To wage war, um, seems pretty obvious, um, and pretty universally attractive. I don't think there's many people that advocate for war. Um, in general. Maybe a specific war, right, where they feel that they've been slighted. But in general, uh, I think most people would like to see war be less of a thing, let's say. So a money that can't be manipulated, inflated, or confiscated is a really good start. (laughs) Uh, It holds within it the promise of at least removing that element of war financing, inflation, and um, giving people a vote that counts, right? If a, if a state is mistreating people, well, now people can put their liquid wealth into Bitcoin and leave, right? They can vote with their, their wallet or their feet. And the longer term implications of that presumably would be more honest governments, right? Governments that actually, uh, listened to the preferences of their customers, because if they don't, their customers will go elsewhere and they'll lose business. Uh, And again that is very contrary to the fiat currency system we have today where why would you be accountable to the preferences of your citizens when you can just print money and do whatever you want so you know there's a lot of negative consequences that come with monopolization Um, food shortages unemployment price signal distortion misallocated resources the rewarding of non-productive behavior uh, exacerbated boom and bust business cycle. And all of those negative consequences, as if all those weren't bad enough, you also have this other big one, war. And so we can curtail all that, right? The, the degree to which we remove legal monopolies and let open free markets operate is the degree to which we curtail all these i think universally bad things right there's no one that really wants food shortages unemployment price signal distortion misallocated resources non-productive behavior or booms and busts or war like these are all things humans pretty much could agree we could do with less of um and so that is creating, like, the degree to which we can mitigate that is the degree to which we can create incentives for cooperation and long-term relationship building, right? Meaningful relationships. So, I think, you know, there's strong arguments to be made that under a Bitcoin standard, World War I and World War II would not have wrought the destruction that they did. Um, when governments are forced to wage war within the confines of their own balance sheets and are not able to confiscate wealth from citizens to fund war, well, they tend to run out of money a lot faster, right? War is very expensive. And once one side gets into financial straits, the incentive to cut a deal, right? To sign an armistice or tribute, whatever the arrangement is, is much higher, right? Rather than print more money and fight harder. So... Um, there's really something to be said for that, right? Bitcoin could actually inhibit the possibility of there being a, a World War III at the scale, scope, and duration of, of World War II. So, you know, we could, and this is this may sound idealistic, but in a world running on Bitcoin, we may view World War One and World War II as just like a relic of our, barbaric industrial past, um, which would make Bitcoin like the ultimate boon to the meaningfulness of relationships, right? If this idea of incorruptible, honest money just dampens the government war machine, well, that is almost the same thing as saying it, it makes relationships more meaningful, right? At least makes them more sustainable and possible. Um, Maybe it doesn't make them more meaningful, but it opens up the opportunity for people to engage in meaningful relationships rather than violent, destructive relationships. Um, But that's far off in the distance, perhaps. And um, to get there, we need to face the reality as it is head on and deal with it as it is, which brings us right here to the here and now and our next principle, which is the principle of facing reality. Ray writes, quote, Man's most distinctive quality is our ability to look down on reality from a higher perspective and synthesize an understanding of it, unquote. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin-enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it, legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian Chris Rock. Insurance. You got to have some insurance. You got to. There's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. (laughs) And I'll give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? So with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor Wasabi Wallet. Wasabi lets you use Bitcoin privately while still maintaining full control over your money. Specifically, Wasabi Wallet is an open source, non-custodial wallet with privacy built in by default. By using Wasabi, you're effectively putting the private back in private property. Wasabi Wallet is an easy to use privacy wallet that can support any amount of Bitcoin transactions. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download this state of the art wallet software. Now, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Casa. Casa makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, Casa provides a multi key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now, when I talk about Bitcoin being theft proof money or inviolable private property, a multi key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, today to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. Another perverse consequence of a world dominated by monetary socialism, aka central banking, is that national economies become dependent on central bank market intervention or manipulation to stay afloat. Um, for example, you know the European Central Bank, the ECB, uh, again, this was written a couple of years ago, but I was looking at their situation. They keep, at the time, they were printing money to buy bonds and inject cash into European economies, which drives up the price of bonds and depresses yields on them, right? So as a bond price goes higher, its nominal yield goes down and vice versa. Now, in a Bitcoin world where monetary policy has been removed from the hands of people uh, who are as incapable of managing, again, these people are supposed to be managing the economy, but as we've talked about a million times, you can't manage... A complex system like the economy any better than you can manage the weather? It's it's a it's a farce. Uh, we're all just participating in this complex system, and it's in a Bitcoin world. You eliminate the vector by which policymakers create those economic distortions, and then they try to fight off those ver- the consequences of those distortions with the same or similar policy tools that created them in the first place. So it's a very self-defeating uh pattern and all of it's rooted in this this idea that you know money can be stolen by majority vote maybe not necessarily a vote right because the vote's not not part of the central bank decision decision making but the government um can deploy capital based on majority vote so it's this weird dynamic where national economies become dependent on the theft occurring through the central bank. And so it, it creates a very perverse set of incentives um, and you know drives things into the ground, like even bonds themselves, right? So negative yielding debt, it's just one symptom of this fiat disease, this weird, perverse incentive arrangement. Um, another manifestation of this, this fiat uh, disease, corporations buy back their own stocks, right, in what's called share buybacks. And recently, you know, uh, the past three to five years, that's actually become the dominant source of demand for equities. Is actually companies buying back their own shares. Again, if you have access to cheap credit or or, um, you're close to the fiat currency spigot. Your incentive is to borrow dollars, obtain dollars while they're strong and then sell them to buy something that's expected to appreciate. Well, for companies, this is often their own stock, right? These are executives inside the company making these decisions. Uh, obviously they're going to bet on themselves and also their compensation packages are also tied to, um, EPS you know earnings per share and things like this so they can buy more shares from the market put those into treasury stock they can decrease uh the bottom half of that EPS calculation the denominator and therefore increase EPS and increase their their bonus payouts so um there's an agency problem, right? We talked about this earlier. When when you take skin in the game out of the equation, central bankers have an agency problem. Well, there's an agency problem here as well because as you reduce the shares outstanding to help corporate executives hit their EPS targets on which their bonus packages are based, um, that you're financializing the real economy, right? It's not. These are market activities that are occurring that aren't intended to resolve consumer demand, right? Like someone needs a problem solved. This is just financial wizardry. (laughs) So these guys can create a higher take for themselves by manipulating the inputs to their compensation formulas. And those inputs are only manipulable to the extent that money is manipulable. So we can, you know, instead of trying to get in here and prosecute individual executives as they twist the rules. It's like, just pull, remove the option from everyone. Just take the manipulation of money out of the equation. And then this whole game stops being played. Um, and all of that, you know, again, the financialization component that all, it's all an expense on the real economy, right? It's not adding any real economic value, not making any more, plants, equipment, et cetera, et cetera. Now it's a necessary informational tool. We need to connect buyers and sellers, lenders and borrowers, but you want that financial component of the real economy to be as small of a proportion as possible because that means you're creating the most wealth with the least amount of admin, let's say. So there's this perverse configuration of dependencies that you get low risk appetite investors They're being driven out of safe investments like bonds because of negative yields, right? The thing doesn't even pay you back principal anymore when you get into negative yielding territory. So this pushes them out further along the risk curve into equities or even uh, more risky assets. But due to the soft money-fueled share buybacks that we outlined earlier, the dominant source of demand for equities are now the corporations themselves buying back their own stock with artificially cheap money, which makes their share prices perversely dependent on continued central bank expansionary monetary policy. They want you to keep printing, to keep driving share prices higher. This is stealing from the middle and lower classes to satiate the appetite for resources of those nearest the monetary spigot. Again, this is the widening of the gap between rich and poor. Um, And this is you know, the middle class, right? You're eviscerating the middle class. Well, the middle class is what you want to keep strong and healthy if you want your society to live long and prosper. So in this twisted turn of fiat disease, you get entire retirement portfolios, very risk averse investors, pension funds, etc. cetera. They get forced into dependency on central bank monetary policy that is continually accommodative, uh, easy cash, easy credit. And they can only maintain, the central bank can only maintain this confiscation via inflation so long as the underlying society remains sufficiently productive and submissive. So this is a, a system that is destroying productivity but is requiring steadily more productivity to remain viable into the future, because it's, there's an accumulation of debt uh, with with each expansion of the fiat currency supply. So all of that to say, it is intrinsically self-annihilating. Again, you can reason about this to get to reach this conclusion, or you can observe the history of of fiat currencies and and monetary debasement, and you'll reach the same conclusion. So in the spirit of this principle, which is facing reality, I think we're just living in the fiat currency endgame, this iteration of the fiat currency endgame. If interest rates aren't held down, or if central banks stop injecting liquidity in steadily larger doses, the economy will just crash right? That's the game that we've, that's a corner we painted ourselves into uh, from a central bank standpoint. Even if they do those things, it's only a matter of time before society become, starts to become unglued, as it always does when we debase currency. Uh, you know, again, we're, we're dissolving that trust fabric that money provides. Um, and although it's probably pretty clear by now Fiat currency is just not, it's an unsustainable monetary system for all of these reasons. Again, let's look at history. Well, China first attempted a fiat currency in the 7th century. It operated for 500 years and ended in hyperinflation. Ever since then, every major fiat currency, aside from the currently dominant US dollar and British pound, have suffered the same fate. Um... And intuitively, we get this. You know, fiat currency is debt-based money. It's a mechanism for theft. It's inevitable that those victims of theft are eventually unable to service the debt load that's getting dumped on them. Right? You're again, you're undermining productivity, but at the same time, requiring more productivity to be mustered for this uh, for this program to continue. And so, another way of saying this, perhaps, is debt. Is a promise to future money, which in a fiat currency regime always leads to the printing of more money. Right. <laughs> so you put more debt in the system. This creates more future demand for money. Right. This is that's what debt is. Well, when that demand is registered, you need new money. Right. That you get this deflationary shock. And in a fiat regime, what does that mean? Well, that means well, they're going to print it every time. And every time they print it you're widening the gap between rich and poor, you're putting more leverage into the system, you're fragilizing the whole economy and driving it towards its inevitable demise. So, you know, this is all rooted in the realities of of money, frankly. Um, Self-interest is the root cause of fiat currency depreciation. That's theft by inflation, right? If you're an insider to a central bank, you're self-interested to maintain that position Of perpetual profit. Self-interest is also the root cause of Bitcoin's appreciation, though, because you have individuals accumulating the form of money that can't be printed or can't be stolen. And as it's priced in terms of other monies that can be printed and can be stolen, uh, number go up, right? Bitcoin US dollar price go up, as we say. So, what we're talking about here is like a re channeling of human self-interest, right? This is like the reality of, of, of money itself that, um, it is an instrument for managing interpersonal self-interest. And if it's not properly channeled into a free market monetary system, right, where everyone has strong property rights, uh, a trust minimized mode of exchange, and a, a way to store their wealth in, in something that's not easily stolen, right? It's something that's that's secure. If you don't channel self-interest into a system like that, then it's going to be self-annihilating because you get this predator-prey dynamic where you install a predatorial institution like the central bank at the heart of an economy. And then you have the the host organism or the prey is the market economy itself that the The central bank is siphoning wealth off of. And if there's no check on that parasitic activity, then of course it ends catastrophically, as it always has. So, you know, central banking is central planning. And we know, at least in the West, we know central planning doesn't work in general. But for some reason, some weird reason, we've accepted that it works in money, which is the biggest and most important market. So it's like if you. If you don't get central planning or you don't think central planning works, how could you possibly think central banking works? Um, you know, central planning requires dominance um, and it requires enforcement to maintain these coercive hierarchies. And over time, uh, coercion gets outcompeted by cooperation because cooperation just produces more wealth than coercion. Coercion can take it, but competition, I'm sorry, cooperation is what creates it. And so people are always going to choose to play the game where they're treated best or have have the most favorable rules. And that's another way of looking at the, the reality of fiat currencies. That's why it collapses, right? It's a game with unstable rules and actually an incentive to undermine the rules by insiders, so, of course, the whole game uh, gets more and more rickety and collapses over time. So, I mean, this is kind of the big idea, you know, that you've got going all the way back to Ray's first principle, which was the idea of meritocracy itself. What was it all about? You know, it was all about depoliticizing the decision-making process. So, Ray wanted to create an organization that it wasn't about tenure or who had the bigger desk uh, that, that carried the most most weight in a, a collaborative decision-making environment. He wanted the best ideas to win out, right? He wanted the, the person with the most merit, um, that person's input to be heard, even if that person is an intern or whatever it may be. So. That was his aim, right? That was his aim in cultivating the Bridgewater operating and cultural environment was to have a the depoliticization of the decision-making process inside of his organization such that the best ideas could flourish, right? You could decide on merit, et cetera, et cetera. And he's very successful at that. Bridgewater is one of the most successful hedge funds in the world. And the reality of Bitcoin is somewhat similar, right? We're just talking about depoliticizing the monetary system. Take the human, the man in the middle, out of the equation. You don't need human intervention on these timeless principles like uh, people keeping what they earn, right? Uh, do not steal, do not kill, right? In terms of definancing war. Um, you're just taking politics out of the most important, the most all-encompassing technology that humans use, and that is money. So, um, again, I hope this letter helped articulate some of the more nuanced perspectives on Bitcoin, and I think it it was cool to look at the world through Ray's worldview. Um, really forced me to kind of crystallize my thinking on some things and so, in conclusion, you know, Bitcoin is this ungovernable, unstoppable, perfectly trans, perfectly transparent implementation of an energy-based, absolutely scarce, free market monetary technology. Um, it's honest money, right? It's just it is what it says it is. It is devouring all. Dishonest forms of money that it comes in contact with over time. Uh, This includes all other crypto, all fiat currencies. Uh, Anything else that's being used as money just sort of collapses into Bitcoin because Bitcoin has perfected the properties of money. And the value, like the monetary premium that's collapsing into Bitcoin, I don't think it ever leaves again, right? Bitcoin, at least through the scope that I've seen it through, You know, liquidity begets liquidity. The market has always wanted one money. That's what gold was, right? It became the single open source analog monetary network. Um, And it's a technology that's valued based on its network size, right? So the more network participants, the more valuable the money. So the whole thing trends towards one solution. So if Bitcoin's out competing all these other forms of money and it's falling into this, you know, virtually perfect form of money that I don't think that purchasing power ever comes back out. It's like a one-way street, and so I think, in many ways, Bitcoin's also kind of taking human history back towards, at least monetary history, back towards its point of origin, which is hard money, honest money, right? Something people choose consensually through trial and error on the free market, not something that's imposed upon them by government, and. You know, perhaps that there's more to that than just just the monetary history. Like I've noticed a lot of Bitcoiners eating ancestral diets, and um, many coming back to the wisdom of religion and things like this. So there seems to be this traditional value, inspiration about interacting with Bitcoin. And um, you know, for all those reasons, I think Bitcoin Ray. It is the paradigm shift you've been you've intuited or you've seen coming or you've been talking about and uh it's that great pendulum of nature that you always talk about swinging back and forth It's just happening again right we're going back to our roots in terms of having free market money uh emphasis on individual rights this is an overall advancement of this American enterprise and experiment where we tried to create a decentralized governance system. You know, Bitcoin is such a decentralized governance system that it lets you govern yourself effectively, right? You run the node, you choose the rules you want. Um, And it just so happens that people favor rules that are universally uh, fair and in their own self-interest. There's like this shelling point that Bitcoin has established. And um, yeah, for all these long-winded, elaborated reasons, I think Bitcoin is the most significant innovation in the history of humanity. And Ray, I know you've come around to Bitcoin a little bit since I wrote this back in 2019, but I think you still have a ways to go. And I hope this letter helps you get there.